0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, we are glad that you are with us. And this morning, I don't have a ton of things to tell you, but I uh, do you want to inform you of one thing, kind of in keeping with a policy that we kind of put out there uh, many, well, several years ago. Uh, today, what you and I sang uh, in a bunch of our songs, but in that last one, was the words, I believe in the resurrection. I believe that I'll rise again, right? Words affirming that death is not the end of the story, that uh, there is hope because of what Jesus did. And this morning, there's two people, two families uh, who are clinging to that in a particular way because over the past days, there have been people, uh, two people who've been part of this church for many, many years um, who are now with Jesus, um, Gail Pacenti and Sue Hudzik. And uh, we wanted to let you know that. We strive every chance we get to let you know when members have passed away. Um, some of you may not know Gail because she's been a shut-in for many, many years, but a bunch of you know the Hudzik family. And Sue was a woman, as we celebrated in the service a day or so ago, for 50 years, Sue and Mike Hudzik have served in student ministry. 50 years. Um, <clears throat> They came, and there's a bunch of you who probably were little 14-year-old whippersnappers, uh, and Sue served you. And so we wanted to let you know that, and uh, if you know the families, I know that a note uh, to encourage them, let you know you're praying for them and thinking of them would be appreciated. So I wanted to pass that on to you. And. You know, we sung songs and we're in a book that a lot of people have a misconception about the book of Revelation, what we do at Calvary. And I I say this every week because every week we have people visiting who are trying to figure out if this is the place for them. What do we do? What do we not do? Um, Well, one thing we do is 99% of the time we open up a book of the Bible and we work through it chapter by chapter. Uh, and we work through books in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and our thought is that God is sovereign, and He preserved for us and revealed to us what He wants us to know about Himself. And when you go through the Bible, you can't avoid issues, and you can't camp out on issues. You just walk through what's there. And we're we're going through a book of Revelation, and a lot of people think Revelation is about gloom or doom. The the thrust of Revelation is about hope. The thrust, the big story of Revelation is hope, and that Man, there is a better day coming when things will be the way they should be. And so that is what two families in our church are clinging to. That's what some of us are clinging to. So I wanted to pass that on to you. Uh, I will pray for those families. I'll pray for our time. And then we're going to jump into God's Word this morning. Father, we are thankful um, that you have revealed things to us. And we're so thankful that Jesus sacrificially came to where we are and died and gave up everything for us, and that that is what, responding to that in faith, Father, uh, can give us hope, hope that our sins are forgiven, and hope that there is more to the story than this, and that one day we will be in your presence. And so we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, And we do pray today, Father, for the Pacenti family and the Hudzik family who are navigating this season of loss and that you will be close to them and near to them. And Father, there's a lot of other families in watching online or here today that we don't know everything they're going through. And so, God, you tell us that you're near to the brokenhearted. And so for those people whose hearts are broken today, um, we know that you won't necessarily remove that heartbreak but that you will be present with them in the midst of that. And so that's our prayer, Father, on behalf of these people we love and care for. Help us now, God, as we open up this this chapter of Revelation. And it's an amazing uh, focus on you. And so like I pray every week, Father, we know the Spirit is the one who works. And there's things you want us to know about you from this text. And so we pray and we trust the Spirit to reveal those to us this morning. And it's in the name of our King who is coming again that we pray these things, Jesus. Amen. Well, so like I said, right, last week we had uh, an amazing time if you were here for our Thanksgiving service, and we were able to distribute some food and literally thousands of OCC boxes and collect gift cards. Um, we celebrated life change from, from a bunch of baptisms, and we had a bunch of families up here dedicating their kids, and it was an amazing Sunday, right, kind of a one-off Sunday. We weren't in Revelation, uh, but today we're back in Revelation, and we're back in Revelation for one week, and we're... We just finished up, if you've been with us, kind of the first big structural section in the book of Revelation. The first big structural section in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3 have been these letters to these seven churches. And we've worked through that in our time together. And when we come back in January, because we got today, and then next week we're going to kick off a, a Christmas Series. What child is this? As we think about the different names of Jesus throughout Scripture and what those names mean and how they impact us, and we'll work through that in Christmas. And then in January, We're going to move into the next big structural section of Revelation. And like I said when I've teed this up, this is the one that if you started hanging out with us regularly, if you bought a notebook for the book of Revelation, this is the structural section you've been waiting for, right? You've watched the trailer of everything else, but you're ready for the the prime feature because when we get back in January, we're going to start walking through chapters 5 through about 19. And it's going to take us a while, but those are... The chapters that contain those events that you're probably familiar with. If you know anything about Revelation, the, 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 the beast, the dragons, the odd things that happen, the what in the world is this all about, the questions about if you've been in church for a while and you've heard these buzzwords, or if you're a Christian and you've not heard these buzzwords, is there a rapture? What's the tribulation? Is there a millennial kingdom? All that stuff is going to be what we're in the next structural section, right? So we've gone through one big block of the book. We're about to move in in January To the next big block and as we kind of read what we've been studying and what we will be studying a lot of times what we do is we come at it and as we think about what we're going to study today a lot of times we come at this from our own cultural setting you come to calvary church on a sunday morning you are of a particular age you are of a particular ethnicity you're of a particular culture you're of a particular socioeconomic status You have particularly good things going in your life or hard things going in your life, and all of that that is you is kind of the lens from which you hear me explain the text or you read the text, and that's good and that's valuable, but it's also really important that we understand that the book wasn't first written to you or to me. The book was written to a bunch of Christians in about 95 A.D., and if we don't keep coming back to what they were facing and what they were going through, we're, we're going to miss a lot about the, what the book is trying to say. And so as we're kind of in this, this gap chapter, this, an amazing chapter, let's think about the people who would have heard this for the first time, what were they facing? Well, they were living in difficult times and they were suffering physically, emotionally, financially, <clears throat> socially. Because of their faith in Jesus. It, it's hard to exactly gauge, but either the Roman Empire had just, or they were just on the verge of signing the bill into legislation making Christianity illegal in the empire. Up to this point, there's been significant, sporadic persecutions and martyrdom and killing people, but the the guy named Domitian who's running the show is about to either just literally on the verge of passing a decree decree or has passed a decree that if you're a Christian it's illegal and if you're a Christian we're going to kill you or persecute you severely. And so this was they were either stepped into that chapter or they knew that that chapter was coming. And that was challenging. I mean imagine hearing Right, As you're hearing these words, this. if you're hearing me preach, read this. Imagine you're sitting there and thinking to yourself, man, last week the president just made it illegal for me to be a Christian, and if they find out I'm here, they're going to kill me. Or imagine thinking this time next week for me to be sitting here is about to be illegal, and if they track me down, they're going to kill me. That is what those people were hearing, and it was unsettling, and it was unnerving. In addition to that, what they've just heard for the past two chapters, for most of the Christians, is all the things they're doing wrong. Because Jesus has just spent time talking to at least six churches that had issues and had problems and had flaws and were not in a good place. And in addition to facing the persecution, in addition to thinking about, man, our church is broken and I'm broken, what do I do? They're about to hear all this prophetic, apocalyptic, right, scary, unsettling things that are about to happen with with plagues and bulls and seals and it's going to be not like circus seals just in case anybody's thinking in the book of revelation there's like a killer seal that's going to eat you right we're talking like seals on land. and there's all this 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 sobering material that's going to come and that is smack dab in the middle of what they're processing and navigating through they know that they are or could be risking death because of their faith They know that presently in a lot of their churches, there's dysfunction, it's broken, and then they're about to hear all this stuff about what's to come down the road at some point in the future that that they're not going to really necessarily know what it means, and it's going to be a little scary, and it's going to be a little unsettling. And for people who are in that situation, as they have all that coming at them, you can imagine that it might make them feel a little unsettled. It might make them feel like, well, things are a little out of control, like things are happening to me, but I'm not able to control them. It would have created some anxiety, likely, and it probably would have made them feel powerless because now the empire has power over them. Something in the future is going to happen that's power over them. Their, their churches, and they would have been in this place as they're hearing these words with all of those emotions and feelings landing upon them. A bunch of christians who love jesus but are suffering for their faith financially physically emotionally socially in terms of relationships a bunch of christians who know things aren't the way they should be a bunch of christians who really don't know what the future is going to look like and they have doubts and there's unknowns and they feel powerless and maybe this morning that's how some of you are feeling Maybe for this morning, right? And there's a bunch of us that it was the best Thanksgiving ever. I think this Thanksgiving, it was the best Thanksgiving food we've ever cooked. I say that every Thanksgiving, but I really, I, and I really mean it every Thanksgiving. We just keep cooking to eat better, better and better, right? Man, it was a great Thanksgiving. We had our kids home um, for this moment, and it could change at any moment, but we're in a great place, and some of you may be in a great place, and we want to celebrate. We want to laugh with those who are laughing, and, and others of you may not be in a great place, though. And when I described what these people were feeling like, that's like, whoa, that's where I am. And I do know one thing because I've lived long enough. Even though I'm in a great place this morning, at some point I'm not going to be. At some point I'm going to feel powerless. I'm going to feel out of control. I'm going to feel anxious. I'm going to feel like I don't know what the future holds. And maybe this morning if you're feeling that way today or when you feel that way tomorrow, this text, this piece of this book is for you because it definitely was for them. And in today's text, with the people feeling those emotions, where they are in the arc of the book, what God is going to do to them is reveal some core truths to them about himself. He's going to kind of grab them by their shirt tails. That's not the shirt tails, the collar. And he's going to say to them, guys, hey, 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 let me tell you guys something about me. Let me try to help what you're feeling and what you're going through by revealing some things to me about me. It's a spiritual pep talk that's meant to encourage them, to give courage to them, to give them something solid to stand upon. And it's really interesting, as we're about to jump into it, what God doesn't tell them. God doesn't tell them how to improve their circumstances. God doesn't tell them self-help advice. If you want to be happier at work, here's the 10-step formula, pay me 19 99. God doesn't provide a formula to them to have a comfortable life. We've talked in the first couple chapters about the persecuted church around the world and Christians who are going through things. I think one thing that uh, evangelical Christianity in the States has done that's a flaw is we've kind of somehow sold this as a way to get the American dream. And if you want a good 401k, or you want a nice house, picket fence, a yellow lab, and two and a half kids, all of that is linked with be a Christian. And somehow, subconsciously, I think people are like, okay, it's a formula. I'm a Christian, so my life is great. Well, that's not what Jesus ever promised. Jesus promised one day your life will be great when you're in heaven with me. But, But God doesn't give them a formula for a comfortable life. He doesn't give them an explanation about why it's happening. He doesn't explain to them, hey, you're believing in Jesus and the soldiers are watching your every move. He doesn't explain why that is. The only thing God gives to them in these chapters is truths about himself. No formulas, no equations, no answers. What God does is say, hey, I'm just going to tell you some things about me. And there is a huge implication to that. And the implication is this, that he alone is enough. He alone is sufficient. You might want a formula. You might want an explanation. You might want to know how to fix your circumstances, and God may never give that to you, but what God gives you is Himself. And He gives you Himself because He Himself is enough. He Himself is enough. Sufficient. And so we're going to work through Revelation 4. <clears throat> we're going to see what God says about Himself and think about how it applies to us. So, a couple of big high level observations before we get into it. If you've got your Bible, if you've got your device, flip it open to Revelation chapter 4. And we're really starting to get into the part of the book now where there is a ton of language that is symbolic. Okay? A ton of language in the sections we're about to enter into. It is not literal okay now don't freak out right we it is symbolic language it's imagery that's being used symbols that are being used to describe certain truths about god and eternal things don't freak out because all of you are very comfortable with that throughout the new testament jesus is referred to as the lamb of god the lamb of god does any do any of you think that Jesus had his body covered in cotton or wool? Do you? Do you think when Jesus talked he went ah? You don't, because you know that that is not a literal description of what Jesus was. It is not saying that Jesus was a lamb animal man. It is using a symbol. To describe certain truths about Jesus, right? Jesus is the Lamb of God, meaning he was a sacrifice for us. We, we, if, you've, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you've read the Bible, you get that. And that's what's going on here. We're going to see a lot of symbols that aren't literal, but to me, to convey higher principles. Second big picture point is this. We may not know what exactly all those symbols mean. We're going to work through them. I'm going to tell you what they may or may not be. But even though we don't know what those symbols mean, what we can know is some of the broader principles that they're trying to convey, okay? So lots of symbols, not literal. We're going to try and take a swipe at what they might mean, but the one thing we can do is draw the broader principles for them, even if we don't precisely know the exact meaning. So what do these verses <clears throat> reveal about God, and how do they help the original listeners, and how might they help you and me? Revelation 4, chapter 1. After this, now... The after this is after John has had a vision and, you know, Jesus has revealed to him certain things about churches. So after that, John writes, "'I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, "'Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit.' So, here's what's going on. John is having a second vision. The book of Revelation is a book of several visions. Some people structurally break it out by the visions. We've not done that, but John's had one vision about Jesus. He's now having a second vision. And his vision is saying, hey, come up here to heaven. Now, most commentators don't think that John was actually like tractor-beamed up to heaven. What most commentators are certain about is, man, he was having a vision, this was a spiritual thing, but he was physically still hanging out on the island of Patmos. And when he gets up and starts seeing this vision about what heaven is like and what God's revealing to him and what is going on in this moment, this is the first thing you see, second part of verse 2. And behold, there was a throne... With one seated, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on it. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. He's describing this person that he sees, and he interestingly uses three different stones to describe this person. This person is God, God sitting on a throne, the appearance of jasper, carnelian, and emerald. Three different stones that are being used to describe what he he sees about God, right? He 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 can't he's trying to capture these things in writing. Jasper was a clear stone. Jasper. Every time I say that, I think Jasper the Friendly Ghost, even though it was Casper the Friendly Ghost. There's Jasper a clear stone. There's Carnelian, which was this red ruby, and there's an emerald, which is green. And right now commentators are split. And one group of people will say, okay, we got to dig into everything we can know about Jasper. And we got to come up with ten facts about Jasper. And those ten facts about Jasper are ten facts about God. And here's ten facts about Emerald, and those are ten facts about God. And there's ten facts about Carnelian, and those are ten facts about God. And they break down each stone individually, come up with... Da-da-da. That's one approach. Could it be a right approach? Sure, it could be. There's a second approach to this, and the second approach is not to take each stone individually, but to try to understand them collectively. And when you try to talk about all these stones and these rare minerals and what do they convey, and either approach could be right, but either approach will kind of get you to the same place where what this author is saying about God is when he sees this God God and this Holy Spirit vision that he's getting. Man, just like these rare stones that are brilliant and are, are powerful and catch your eye and you can't stop looking at it and are filled with light and beauty and glimmering facets that you can't even get your hands around, that's this image that he has of this person who's sitting on the throne, God. Glorious, majestic radiant in beauty and there's this brightness that's just all about him but the point of this section is not simply for those Christians that might have felt like life was out of control for those people who might have felt powerless and like their circumstances were controlling them and they didn't have any control in their circumstances the point of this was not simply how brilliant and majestic and glorious God was because if we only talk about the stones, but we don't talk about the throne, then we're missing something. Because the big idea, and probably the primary idea in these few verses, is the fact that God is sitting on the throne. Represents this fact that in this moment, right now, today, it, God is ruling. And there's this throne, right, a symbol fixed in heaven. Again, symbolic language that's permanent, that's unchanging, that reveals that God has complete control of anything and of everything. God has complete control of anything and of everything. And that idea is is fleshed out later on in the next, uh, later on in the passage in verse 8. And we'll unpack this, but these people around the throne and they're saying these things and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. You know what almighty means? It means he has all might. Look at that. $229 million in the seminary education, just to give you that this morning, right? Almighty means that God has all might, he is not lacking might. He is not short of might. We've started to watch this show on the Disney Channel Plus. It's Tim Allen, the Santa Clauses. In this show, Santa's losing his magic, and they got to figure it out. Gee, this is saying, man, God never loses anything. Never loses anything, has all power, and there is nothing that is more powerful than God. He has all might. All power lacking in none of it and nothing is more powerful than him it's revealing this fact that right at this moment god is in control ruling on the throne and as the person who is in control of it all he has all might all power But it doesn't end there revealing this truth about him. It reveals something else and it keeps going in another passage right here. This next clause. Oops, sorry. Go back one more time, please. In this next line, it says this about God being who was and is and is to come. This God who is controlling it all. Who is more powerful than it all. Who is loving and majestic and glorious. What it's saying is he was, he is, and he is to come. And part of that is revealing this truth about his rule and his sovereignty and his control and his power. He's been in control of it all. He is in control of it now. And he will be in control of what will come. To a group of people who were wondering if they were going to be killed for their faith, who were in a church that was filled with dysfunction, who were about to hear these words that would make them hear about tribulation and beasts and numbers of the beast and martyrdom, they'd be thinking to themselves, man, I don't have any clue what the future holds. To those people suffering those emotions in that time, what God is saying about himself is, oh, look, I'm in control. You may feel like everything is spinning out of control, he says to them. But I'm in control. And I am powerful over it all. Everything and anything. It's not bigger than me. You remember the veggie tales? Some of you don't because I'm old. If you're old like me, you may remember the VeggieTales. And there was this little silly song about how God is bigger than the boogeyman. God is bigger than the boogeyman. God is bigger than the boogeyman. Bigger than it all. And this God who's in control, who is almighty, has been in control of what has been, what is, and what will to come. And that truth for those people in 95 AD, for people who believed in Jesus, is just as true for you and for me today for those of us who believe in Even if you don't believe in Jesus, whether you don't believe in Jesus, that doesn't change who God is. This is what they needed to know, and this is what we need to know. First point from this, for people who might feel powerless, is God is in control. I talk a lot about my yellow lab Ford. I'm not going to, but next time I do, somebody pointed out to me, like, dude, I don't know if you actually have this dog. Like, you need to throw a picture of that dog up there. So I will. Some of you can attest to my dog because he has mauled you. But I saved you from the slobbering of a yellow lab, right? Um, I also talk a lot about my friend's Boston whale that I use up in New Hampshire. I don't have a picture of that either. But next time I will to make you know that these are legitimate things. I'm not just making this up. Um, but uh, I got this buddy. I've told you a lot. He lets me borrow his twenty-one foot whaler, drag it up to New Hampshire, use it up on Lake Winpasaki Pretty much any summer, every summer that we want to. Because my wife's family has a little place up there. One year they were in town, and so they're like, "Hey, you know, come get us, man. We're going let's go out for the Fourth of July." Uh, and we'll go watch the fireworks by the boat. I've told you before, my adventures on the boat, I will drive that boat from sunrise to sunset. But it is very challenging to drive on Lake Winnipesaukee because if it is like, well, there's lots of places, but it's definitely the one place where if you don't use your chart, man, you are on the rocks. And I mean, you are. And some of you are thinking, not me, because I'm a boat, boat, you will be on the rocks. So when it is nighttime, I'm like, nope, boat's tied up and I'm in relaxing, I boating around. So the buddy who's boated is, is like, dude, look, I'll take the boat. It's his boat. I'll drive the boat. We'll go out like at 930 or night. We'll go where all these other boats are late at night. We'll go to this middle of this downtown of Center Harbor or Meredith. We'll watch the fireworks. We'll boat back. And I'm thinking to myself, if it was me, there is no way I would do that. I am not getting in the middle of Lake Winnipesaukee with about a hundred other boats at night with about 99 other people who are drunk out of their mind. I am not going to try to navigate home without a, uh, you know, like little GPS chart. I ain't going to do this. But guess what? I didn't have to do it because the guy who knew what he was doing much better than me was the one who was going to do it. So he drove the boat and we anchored with a bunch of other boats around us, and it was dark, and it was late, and there were fireworks, and there were drunk people, and I wasn't worried about it at all. Now, if I had been the one in control of the boat, man, I'd have been freaking out. I mean, I'd have been like, I'd have been drinking more chamomile tea than was allowed by law to try to calm down. I'd have been worried. I'd have been watching everything. i i have been like, ah! But I didn't have to be because I wasn't the one driving the boat because the person who was in control was much more powerful, knew what he was doing, so I could just relax. And I did. And I think the point of this text, the first people, is this. Look, this is for you to be a source of comfort. Control is an illusion. You don't have it. Some of you may think you do, you're wrong. And for those of you who think that you're able to control your life, the best thing for you would be to become disillusioned. You know what disillusionment means? It means you don't believe in illusion anymore. For a lot of us, the fact that we can control every aspect of our life, it's an illusion, and then when we start to realize we can't, you know what starts to happen, we start to freak out. We think we can control it. It's an illusion. The reality is we can't control it, causes us to panic, to freak out, to try to control it more, and now we're running around in anxiety trying to control something we never were intended to control, that we're not supposed to have the responsibility to control, and we don't have the power to control. We we think we can control it all, but some of you know you can't, because that curveballs come into your life. And you spent your whole life trying to prevent that curveball from coming, and it came, and you're like, I, I don't have control. And what I think God is trying to say to these people is, look, I know that you feel powerless. I know you don't know the future. I know you don't understand the present. I know you might feel discouraged because your church is broken, but look, 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 look. I'm in control. So to the best that you can, just rest in the boat and let me do the driving. And it may not end up the way that you'd hoped. But that doesn't mean that I'm not in control. Despite everything that was happening to these people and would happen to these people and had happened, and despite everything that is happening to you and is happening to me and has happened and might happen, God is still on the throne. God is still on in control over what was, what is, and what will to come. And maybe this morning that provides some encouragement for some of you. Because maybe this morning there's something in your story that feels so out of control. And again, if it doesn't feel that way to you today, hey, stick around on the ride a few more minutes because one day pretty soon it will. Maybe there's something that's happening this morning that's making you feel powerless. Maybe like these readers are about to hear some things about the future that makes them feel like, bro, I don't even know what's going to happen. Maybe that's how you feel, that something's happened recently that has caused this question to come into your mind of, bro, I don't even know what's going to happen. And in spite of all that, you feel powerless. And maybe what God's trying to say to you today is, look, even though I may not change your circumstances, even though I may not give you all the answers, even though I won't give you a formula to get out of it, what I want you to remember is, hey, I'm in control. Will you trust me? I'm in control. Will you trust me? Here's what I'd love for you to do. I'm going to give you 10 seconds. Because all of us have something. I want to just give you 10 seconds. I thought about putting in the bulletin, but half of you don't pick up bulletins no matter what we do. And I usually give you these gimmicky things. When you think of me, brush. when you're brushing your teeth tonight, do this. Y'all don't even do that anyway, right? But I'm gonna, I want you to do something right now. I'm going to give you 15 seconds. And I either want you to write down or send a text to yourself or just quietly affirm in your own heart Whatever you may feel is out of control, whatever is causing you anxiety, whatever is unknown, whatever you don't know, I just want you to take a few seconds and just affirm for yourself, repeat for yourself, write for yourself, God, you are in control over blank. Whatever that blank is for you, I want you right now in this place, in this moment, just to affirm it, even if you may not feel it. If you're a follower of Jesus affirm in this moment that God you are in control over blank Take 10 seconds and whatever you want to do that And what is this sovereign God experiencing what is this being that is in control of it all, that is almighty over what was, what is, what is to come? What has what he experienced? What is being done towards him? That's what the rest of the chapter goes on about. So, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to try to explain it, and we'll see what comfort it brought to those people and how it impacts us today. So, verses 4 through um, pretty much the end. Okay, so he's sitting on the throne. We've heard about the stones. And then this says this in verse 4. Around the throne there were 24 thrones. And seated on the throne... This is where it gets super symbolic. And seated around those thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumbles and peals of thunders. And before the throne we burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was as if it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, there's a song, a worship song, right, that has that line, day and night and night and day, day and night and night and day. Day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created." This verses that are very confusing, very symbolic, describe two different groups of beings. One group is these four living creatures who are around the throne. The second group are these 24 elders. So let's try and understand who's who, what's going on, what's going on. Okay. First group of the living are these four living creatures. They're described uh, in the first section of the, um, they're described in one place here, right? These four living creatures full of eyes. Now, we're going to hear about these four living creatures several times throughout the book of Revelation. They're going to be key players that we're going to keep coming back to these living creatures. living cre- Again, it's a symbolism. So what are these living creatures? Well, interestingly, if you're don't want to watch World Cup today, or you need something to do, or you get skunked in online chess a lot, so you want to do something else, you should look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel, it's a prophetic book in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 mention, describe, talk about, guess what they talk about? Four living, man, you are Old Testament scholars, every single one of you. Yes, they talk about four living creatures. And what they do is they identify what these four living creatures are. They give a referent to the symbol. They define the symbol and they say that these four living creatures are a group, a category of angels. They're spiritual beings, right? It's a, it's a symbol to describe this spirit, these spiritual beings, a group of angels known as cherubim. Cherubim, an exalted order of angels that are described in Ezekiel as four living creatures. So most commentators think, well, hey, if there's four living creatures in Ezekiel that are these group of angels, then it must be the same four living creatures here must be a group of angels as well. This group of creatures are described as being full of eyes, right? Six wings full of eyes in verse 5 and 8. This symbolizes that these creatures, man, they're aware. They're alert, they understand what's going on. They don't know everything, but they know. They, they, they're, they're not omniscient, but man, they, they, they see what's going on. They're paying attention. And then these living creatures are described, these angels, these cherubim, have these descriptions linked with them of these animals. In verse 7, lion, ox, face of man, eagle. Good luck. Good luck. Uh, it, it may mean that the characteristics of each of those things are being uh, linked with these cherubim, right? So, again, commentator, sometimes we like certainty. And God doesn't, all, sometimes we may not know exactly what all this means, these symbols, with certainty. But commentators dig, and so some people say, well, the lion represents the strength of these cherubim, the ox that they serve, the man that they reason, the eagle, the speed. That could be, but the first thing we see are these living creatures who it's pretty clear are this angelic group of angels, cherubim, around the throne of God, present in heaven, observing God, just worshiping, worshiping, worshiping. Then there's the second group, 24 elders, and there's a lot of debate about who these 24 elders are, right? Some people think these 24 elders are another group of angels, Then other people think these 24 elders are humans. Um, And when you start pressing into, well, what human type people could they be? Some thoughts are that these are just a symbolic representative of the whole church. So every Christian is being symbolically represented by these 24 people. Some people think that they're martyrs during the tribulation. Some people think that, I kind of like this one. I don't know if it's right. They think that they're, the 24 people are like the 12 apostles and the 12, pa- the 12 patriarchs from the Old Testament. So like the 12 studs in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles, those are the 24 people. We don't know. What does seem pretty clear from this, though, is that they are human. So it's not another angelic group. Living creatures of the cherubim around the throne of God. Uh, but this group seems to be humans. And the reason that I think they're humans is because it says they're wearing white clothing that's always worn by uh, Christians. Whenever white clothing is referenced in the New Testament, it always talks about people. They're being described as elders, and elders is always a phrase that's used for people, humans, never of angels. And they're ruling with Jesus on thrones. And you never see angels ruling with Jesus. There's always descriptions of people ruling with Jesus. So from that, it does seem that there's some group of humans, exactly what they represent or symbolize, or are they actually 24 people, or is 24 a catch-all for a broader number? We, We don't know with certainty. We know some options. And if you feel you need certainty, then what we do is we land on an option with humility. If you need to know exactly what the referent is of those, then you say, well, this seems reasonable, but you camp out there humbly. Um, Even though we don't know exactly, precisely, with 100% confidence who those 24 people are, or necessarily every symbol about the cherubim, what is absolutely clear is what those beings are doing. What those beings are doing. And What both groups are doing, we see, is worshiping. Worshiping. Revelation 4 through 8, we read it. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then when these group of human 24 people hear that happening, we see what these dudes do. Every time those angels are like, holy, 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 what symbolically we see and maybe even physically what we see these 24 human group characteristic people doing is they hear about that Jesus and you know what it tells us? Man, they bow down. They bow down before God. And they bow down before God, and they don't only bow down before God, but they take their thrones off. And as they're bowing down, they take those thrones and they cast them before God who's on the throne. In that culture, when a higher being, when somebody up the org chart higher than you in like the kingdom would cruise into town... What you would do if like you're the mayor of the town and the governor comes or if you're the governor and like the president comes, what you do is if you have a crown or you have something in your head, when that person that's higher than you comes, what you do is you take that crown off and you throw it down at their feet to say to them, hey, I know that I'm not the one in charge. I know that you're better than me and you're bigger than me. And out of respect for you and love for you, man, I'm going to put it down before you. I'm going to let go of everything that I claim to as a right and as my entitlement, as my control and my own godship, and I'm just going to throw it down at your feet. And when these 24 elders hear these angels saying, holy, 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 what happens in that moment is they're so moved by the reality of who God is that they fall on their face before him and they take off anything that might symbolize their own claim to power in front of them and they put it down before him and they say, in the face of you, I'm nothing and it's all yours. In the face of you, it's nothing, and I'm all yours, and it's all yours, and it's all about you. Worthy, worthy, worthy. You deserve it all. You can have it all. I give it to you all because you've earned it. And because you deserve it, and because you're God, and I'm not. They provide this model for us today, this example for us today. And the second point is this that God is in control, and the second point is instead of trying to control what you are powerless to control, worship the one who is in control. Worship the one who is in control. That's what they're doing because that's what we should be doing because that's what the people in 95 AD should have been doing because that's what we're to do when we realize who God is and who we're not. Worshiping God is a battle for our minds before it's an act of our hearts. Did you know that? Worshiping God is a battle for our minds, about what we think is in control, about what we think is most important, about what we think is most meaningful and powerful, and it's a battle to control our thinking before it's a battle of our hearts. And if some of you this morning, you're like, no, I don't want to bow down. I want to cling to it all. I want to keep it all. I want to control it all. Then you know what? You don't have a worship problem. You have a thinking problem. Because you're thinking wrongly about who you are in light of who God is. And as our thoughts about the majesty of God expand, right? Remember those little, (laughs) I got to stop. I, I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta use some TikTok examples up here or something, man, because I go back to the '80s again because the '80s were the best decade ever. But you can still do this though. You can still go to Walmart or Target. I think you can. Please be right. Or you can, you can order it off Amazon and you can get this little, like little whatever. It, and sometimes it's in a capsule, or sometimes it's like a little teeny army man or a little teeny lion, right? And it's like little teeny tiny. And you take that little teeny tiny thing and you put it in a cup of water or a bucket of water, and you know what happens? To that little tiny thing. It goes, right? Till it gobbles up your room and eats your grandma. It's an amazing thing, right? It expands. It gets filled. It takes up more space. And as that happens in our minds about who God is, it overflows to our hearts. And as our view of God expands from simply that he's a cartoon character or a grumpy guy, or here's my theology about God. I know about God, but I don't really know God. As all of our thoughts about God expand and enlarge, so will our worship. So will our worship. And as our thoughts expand, we'll be like the elders before the throne, and we will be willing more and more to bow before Him and to cast it all before Him. Cast our priorities. Cast our unknowns. Cast our finances, cast our family, cast our future before him in worship. Who controls it all and who is worthy of it all. And as we do, we won't say, boy, I think you're about to ruin my life. We won't say, boy, I wish I was in control. What we'll say is, worthy, worthy, worthy. Are you? This morning, what I've had to ask myself as I've been preparing this, and I'll ask you, is what are you wrongly and desperately and selfishly trying to hold on to and trying to control that you need to let go of and cast before the one who is worthy and who is in control? This morning, if you're making a decision about your future, how might the reality of what you've heard from God's word this morning about the worthiness of God and the sovereign control of God impact that decision that you're facing? If you came to that decision that you're facing this morning or when you have to decide something next month or when you have to decide something in 24 months, if you came into that decision with a focus on worship, the the perspective that God is in control of it all and God is worthy of it all and God knows it all and He's the God who was and who is and is to come, how might that shape the way in which you make a decision? How might who He is impact a decision that you're trying to make today? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up now and I'm going to invite... uh, not the 24 elders, but four elders to come up now. And in the next chapter, what we're going to see is this, this. I mean, I love the next chapter. In the next chapter, we're going to see this amazing reality about one thing that makes the triune God so worthy of worship. And particularly what we're going to see is one thing that makes the Son of God, the incarnate Jesus, so worthy of worship. There's more worship that's going on, and now the worship in chapter 5 is we, the very first opening scene. This is a spoiler alert. Still show up, okay? But the opening scene before all the weird, scary, hard stuff, blah, starts to happen is this image of Jesus, and, and the, the image of the worthiness of Jesus and the worship of Jesus, and there's this question that asked, right? They're trying to figure out who is able to do something. And, and there's this question, who, in verse five, chapter 5, you, there's this question, this phrase, like, man, we've we got to get to the end. And before we get to the end, we got to get to the middle to get to the end. But, but who is worthy to start moving us towards the process of fixing it all and making it all known? And there's this question in heaven symbolically about who is it, who can it be, who is worthy? And then all of a sudden, the answer by one person is, you know who is worthy? Jesus. Jesus. And so there's this worship that moves into it, and this response is the question of who is worthy to open the seals, and one of the elders, right? John asked that question, like, who's worthy to kick this thing off, to move us towards where we're supposed to be going? Because all I see is brokenness, and one of the elders says to John, hey, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And then flowing out of that, there's, there's this worship of Jesus. This group of people all singing now this song to Jesus saying, Worthy are you, right? Worth, majesty, worship are you to take the scroll and open its seals. And here's why. Four because here's the reason we're worshiping you. Here's the reason we're giving you value. Here's the reason we think you're the most beautiful, glorious thing that we will do everything for and anything for, because you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might Forever. And the reason they're ascribing those things to Jesus is because Jesus is the one who was slain and who ransomed all people from all nations, from all stories, from backgrounds. The worship of Jesus is linked with the sacrifice of Jesus, and the sacrifice of Jesus was for you. The worship of Jesus is linked with the sacrifice of Jesus, and the sacrifice of Jesus was for you. Because there is an amazing sovereign God who is in control, and part of what he did in his sovereignty is he created you. And he created you with value, and he created you with worth, and he created you to be this amazing masterpiece of him. And he adores you. But there's been moments in my heart that selfishly I haven't adored God. I've adored my own plans and my own way and my own path and my own sin. And so when I took that path, I put myself, I put myself out of a relationship with God. And God looks and sees a person that he made and loves and adores with value. And guess what? When you sinned, you put yourself out of a relationship with God. And God looked and sees a person who he adores with worth and value and significance and a masterpiece that is you. And he said, I want what is best for you. And what is best for you is to be reconnected and restored to him. And you couldn't do that. And you can't do it. And so Jesus did it for you. Jesus gave up everything. Never his divinity, but his right to act out of his divinity gave up everything for me and for you, so that we would never know all of the scary stuff that's to come. We would only know the best stuff. We would only know the best stuff. Jesus is worthy of his worship, our worship, and he's worthy of worship because of his sacrifice for you. And I get so distracted by so many stupid things. I get so wrapped up in so many things that I prioritize that are just a small piece of the story, but not the whole story. Because there is this eternity that is far beyond the four little boxed walls of the life which we live that is expansive and massive and forever. That's the story. And this is part of the story but I get so wrapped up living for this little box of the story that, man, God needs to yank me back to prioritizing that part of the story. Jesus is worthy of worship because he sacrificed for you. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Holy, holy, holy. And we say those things now in a world where we say goodbye to people we love because of death, where we face financial stresses we never thought we'd face, when there were fights around your Thanksgiving table that you don't know why there were, when there's test results that come back bad in a world that is broken. But in our broken world, we cling to the fact that that's not the end of the story. And this morning, we have a way to tangibly remind ourselves of that physically. Because Jesus was pretty smart. And Jesus knows when there's there's things that we're just trying to grasp sometimes, it's kind of hard to grasp the fog. So Jesus put something in our hand to hold on to that has been passed down for over 2,000 years. And what Jesus says, I'm going to put in your hand so that you can hold on to something physical, to remind yourself of something spiritual was some bread and some wine. And this morning, for those of us who believe in Jesus, we have this amazing way to worship and to remind ourselves of His worthiness and to remind ourselves of everything that comes along with that by grabbing a piece of bread and some juice. And we're going to do that. And so in a minute, what I'd love for you to do is just take some time and reflect upon the worthiness of Jesus. Thank him for the sacrifice for you and for the amazing blessings that come along with that. And then when you're ready and as you're ready, I'll invite you to come forward and take the elements. If you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, if you don't believe this, then don't come forward, right? You're on a journey somewhere. And even if you don't believe any of this is true, it is such an honor for us to have you here with us today. And so we're grateful that you chose to be here. For those of us who believe this is true, this is a chance to hold something that helps us remind ourselves of something that we cannot see. And so we have a chance to do that as an act of worship of Jesus this morning. So when you're ready, and as you're ready, I'll invite you to come forward, take the elements, go back to your seats, don't take them, and then I'm going to come back out when everybody's got them, and we'll take them all together as a community, okay? So when you're ready, and as you're ready, come forward and receive the elements from the elders.